Today we tell the story, the one we know so well, the story that is being told in every church all over the globe this beginning of Holy Week. So to set the scene, Jesus has set his sights on Jerusalem. He, he's going to the big time. He's going to the big dance, as we college basketball fans might call it. Not on an ordinary day in Jerusalem, but on Passover. The celebration of liberation from Egypt for the Jews, who it turns out now find themselves extremely unliberated, this time from occupation and oppression and violence from the Roman Empire. And Jesus, he's been out in the hillside in Galilee. He's been making waves, making both the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, the powers that be, extremely nervous. What with his healing and forgiving and proclaiming of God's kingdom. And into this turmoil, we hear this story. A reading from the book of Matthew. When they had come near Jerusalem and reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we rejoice that once Jesus was received with honor, that once men and women and children shouted the startling idea Hosanna, save us now. But we know, oh God, because we've seen it in our world, how sometimes hopeful faith can turn to bitterness and doubt and finally violence. How sometimes we have a way of turning away from what is good and kind and just. So as we begin once again a holy journey to the cross, Silence in us any voice but yours. 
Give us a few quiet moments to ponder the gift of your love and your amazing grace. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Barry Clayton Black grew up in the hood, where he said that sitting on the stoop with his seven brothers and sisters, it wasn't unusual to witness drug dealers and prostitutes and domestic violence playing out on the streets. His mother sacrificed much to send he and his siblings to school. And more than once, he came home to find all the family furniture sitting in the front yard. Black, now Reverend Dr. Black, joined the Navy, and he served as a chaplain for 27 years. And he retired about 20 years ago as the chief of chaplains for the US Navy after which he was called as the 62nd chaplain of the United States Senate, the first African-American and the first Seventh-day Adventist to do so. In the almost 20 years that Black has delivered the opening prayer for the Senate proceeding, he has rarely espoused his personal views. But when he opened the legislative session this past Tuesday in the wake of this nation's latest deadly school shooting, in which three nine-year-olds and three school workers were shot and killed in Nashville, Tennessee, Reverend Black had this to say. I hope. We got it? We pray in your powerful name. Amen. Help um, us. Let us pray. All right. Now we got it. Eternal God, we stand in awe of you. Lord, when babies die at a church school, it is time for us to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Remind our lawmakers of the words of the British statesman Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Lord, deliver our senators from the paralysis of analysis that waits for the miraculous. Use them to battle the demonic forces that seek to engulf us. We pray in your powerful name. 
Amen. Please turn. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. We are three months, 82 days into 2023. And in that time, there have been at least 130 mass shootings, defined as shootings where three or more people were killed. I guess there was another one last night. 10,114 people have been killed by gun violence since this year began. Our kindergartners and our first graders know the drill, don't they? Run, hide, fight. They know it as well as they know their ABCs. And we know that our world, our society, shouldn't be like this. It doesn't have to be like this. And we know we can no longer stand by and do nothing. Jesus knew it too. When he set his sights on Jerusalem, he knew he had been making people nervous. What with all the healing and eating with all kinds of unclean people, going around forgiving people willy-nilly, teaching people about how to live in the kingdom of God where grace and mercy and love rule the day. He was generally making a nuisance of himself and making those in power nervous. Not only were the religious authorities concerned, but the Roman authorities too. And then there were the crowds, those who had heard about him, the crowds of peasants who were frankly at the end of their rope under Roman occupation. They were wondering about their future they were wondering about their children's future, and they were growing weary of the oppression they faced each and every day. These were people who longed for a savior, a messiah, one who might have the power and military might to drive out their occupiers, to make life right again. But you know, there was another parade that day, though the Gospels don't record it. We know from historians that throughout the first century, Rome always staged an imperial parade in Jerusalem at Passover, when as many as 250,000 people flocked to the city to celebrate freedom and liberation. The powerful need to hang on to their power at all costs. And so the powers of Rome always wanted to be proactive at that exact time of year in order to quash anybody's misbegotten idea that they could be or should be liberated again. This time from Rome. And to underline their point, Rome would always put on a carefully managed imperial parade in order to announce their raw political and military power. 
It was led each year by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He would ride into Jerusalem on his war horse from the west at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers and the people gathered on the side of the road to watch them. They would inevitably see big strong horses and foot soldiers and leather armor and helmets and weapons and banners and golden eagles mounted on poles. And they would hear the marching feet and the cracking of leather and the clinking of bridles and the beating of drums. And there is no doubt that both the sights and sounds of Pilate's parade were meant to serve as reminders of just who or what was in control of their lives and their deaths. Jesus' parade was a little different. With the flourish of a little performance art orchestrated by Jesus, the peasants who line the streets to watch his parade saw a man sitting atop a colt, not a war horse, riding in from the east, not the west. That image purposely designed by Jesus would have inevitably brought to their minds the prophet Zechariah and the promise of a God-given king of Israel, of military might that would banish war from the land and command peace to the nations. I confess that I can really relate to the Palm Sunday hopeful. Like the stone-faced, silent, unlike the stone-faced, silent, and intimidated crowds who watched Pilate's parade, These spectators watching Jesus joined in the fun with perhaps the same kind of playfulness we demonstrated at the beginning of our worship, although I think they were probably a little warmer. (laughs) They shouted, Hosanna, which means save us now. And I can relate. I like a good nonviolent protest march. I mean, who amongst us doesn't feel a deep longing for our world to be saved, made whole? Who doesn't want our power structures that are deeply entrenched in a corrupt system to make positive changes of the people, for the people, and by the people? But what strikes me in this story is how we all get it wrong. How almost everybody in this story gets it wrong. The Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, the disciples, the crowd, we get it wrong when we distort what God's power is all about. What strikes me most is that our love for power always gets in the way of the power of love. The religious authorities get it wrong when they try to hold on to their power. Pilate gets it wrong as he sends an innocent man to his death. The 
disciples sure get it wrong as they deny him. And we, the crowd, you and me, we get it wrong when we look for a different kind of saving. A saving from hardship or politics or enemies or whomever might steal our power. We are still loving power instead of trusting, trusting the power of love in this world and letting it transform us every day. But we all know what's coming, right? It has happened since the beginning of time when people express their displeasure with the governing authorities, those in power, put up with it for a while, but then they suppress it, ruthlessly, if necessary. We know it's happening all over the world. The powerful always seek scapegoats and try to get rid of them, often violently, in order to keep their power. It's happening in our own country as state legislatures and local school boards try to ban books, as our LGBTQ siblings are under attack from almost every front, as some states try to silence those who would talk about racial history, which is, of course, American history. You see, power needs to silence. And so we know what's coming in our story today. The power keg is about to blow. The crowd is about to get out of hand. In the next four days of Holy Week, Jesus will be hounded and challenged and betrayed and accused, arrested on trumped-up charges, no pun intended. He will be tried in the middle of the night by a kangaroo court. And the next day, Friday, he will appear before Pilate with the crowd no longer waving palm branches or shouting, Hosanna, but instead shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Took only five days. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Knowing what will happen next, I want, to, I want to yell out to Jesus. I want to tell him to play it safe. I want to yell, for God's sake, Jesus, get down off that donkey. Turn around and go back to Galilee. Play it safe, and for the love of God, keep your mouth shut. I want to tell him to do what, our, what we teach our students to do. Run, hide, fight. But he does not, none of these things. No, as the events of this coming week will remind us, Jesus saves us, saves us by revealing God's vision for making whole our world through nonviolence, not coercion, through his suffering, not his splendor, through his vulnerability, not his power over, 
through his willingness and determination to never waver being what God called him to be. God with us. God for us. Even though that insistence would lead him straight to his death on a cross. Diana Butler Bass, in her book, Freeing Jesus, which our Lenten book study has been reading, she writes this, Jesus was not killed so his death would save people. He was killed because he was already saving people. And so he threatened a world based in fear, a world held in the grip of Roman imperialism by proving that a community could gather in love, could set a table of plenty, could live in peace with a compassionate God. No empire can stand if the people it oppresses figure out that reconciliation and love and liberation and oneness hold much more power than the sword. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to say nothing. We know, we know in the end that God will have the final word. But for now, we continue to cry, Hosanna, save us now, for we need saving more than ever. Save us from caring more about guns than we do about our children. Save us from racism and violence. Save us from homophobia and transphobia. Save us from war. Save us from our own smallness and stuckness. Save us from our grief and our insecurities. Save us from all those ways we feel powerless, and so we hang our hope on the love of power instead of the power of love. I'll leave you with this lovely poem written by Magdalena Garcia, and I invite you to, if you still have one, hold up a palm in one hand and raise your palm, other palm in the other. The palms you want, Jesus of the hungry, are those of our hands, ready to share the daily bread and to build a world where nobody suffers insecurity. The palms you want, Jesus of the sick, are those of our hands, ready to heal the wounds of body and soul and to build a world where nobody suffers adversity. The palms you want, Jesus, of the marginalized are those of our hands, ready to offer a full welcome, to build a world where nobody suffers loneliness. Come, Jesus of the way, enter the village and the corners of our anxious hearts. 
and grant that we might receive you with joy and without reservation, and that we might swaddle aching humanity with the cloak of your compassion. Amen.